me or listen on as we sing, uh, excuse me, as, as I read Romans chapter 5 as we resume now our study of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Now, uh, my plan is to read all the verses and to preach all the verses in one sermon and then to go through it in a detailed way uh, in the weeks to come. So this will be more of a general analysis of these verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Hear the word of God. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but not. Uh, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many." And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you now for the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, and we take it up now again uh, with, with uh, great interest and enthusiasm, we hope, and we ask that through the preaching you might open up this text of Scripture to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is what they call uh, Easter Sunday. As you know, I'm, I have uh, not too much interest in that sort of thing. Uh, but I also have to say, after two weeks of being out of the pulpit, I am uh, just too eager to get back to Romans. Uh, I'm not against preaching a resurrection sermon, but that is not my plan for this morning. My plan is to resume our study in Romans, and I thank God for the freedom of the new covenant by which we have been freed from the doctrines and commandments of men. Uh, I, I, I'm under no obligation, uh, by God's grace, to follow uh, the calendars which were created later in the church. Not that I'm saying it would be sin to preach a resurrection sermon, but that is not my plan this morning. <laughs> uh, so it, it, to, to uh, insulate me from the questions I might get after the service, uh, Romans is the plan for this morning. Uh, and, 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 you know, it is hard to preach a New Testament sermon, thank God, without reference to the resurrection. Uh, we see the parallel between Christ and Adam uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so there will be uh, some of that in the sermon. But as I say, my desire after two weeks out of the pulpit is to get back to Romans and, uh, and to take up what is in many ways uh, the most difficult, but also the most important section of the book of Romans. I'm somewhat torn which section is more difficult, 
to preach and, and even just to understand this or Romans chapter 11. Uh, I, I remember in seminary being struck by how critical these verses were to my understanding of the New Testament, the work of Christ, the gospel, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and, and I've been struck by that ever since. And so, as I say, my plan is to, to consider these verses in general and then in the coming weeks to, to take a more detailed ver, uh, look at these verses in smaller chunks. Uh, I want to begin by asking, what do we have here? Well, we have what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the very heart and center of the epistle to the Romans. The key to the whole book. But what I find so interesting, and and again reflecting somewhat on my own experience uh, as a Christian coming into seminary, hearing uh, really these verses expounded for the first time, although I had been a Christian for a long time and I had been in the church for a long time, and I had listened to many sermons, though I wasn't admittedly in Reformed churches. But what I find so interesting, and I think this remains true even now, and perhaps even more so, uh, in, in light of what Lloyd-Jones says, and in agreement with other Reformed fathers, how little these verses are spoken of today. Not how much, but how little. In, in uh, speaking of the book of Romans, which we all love, it is common for Christians to quote uh, chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so on. Chapter 5, in, in which we are now, but mostly from verses 1 through 11. And chapter 8, of course. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How memorable chapter 8 is and how often it is quoted. And yet, I would note at the same time, in contrast to that, how little Christians quote and love to speak of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And I think that represents something that is lamentable, uh, a decline that has set in in the church. Well, it wasn't always so. It used to be the case that Christians loved to say things like this. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Read the Puritans and you'll find that's verse 19. It's one of their favorite lines, especially when they're speaking of justification. How am I justified? Not by my righteousness, but the righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ. By his righteousness, I am justified. It's one of the clearest statements in the New Testament. Well, as I say, it used to be common for Christians to quote these things and to speak of these things. And it used to be the case that these verses, verses 12 through 21, were viewed as the very center of the epistle to the Romans. And so as essential to understanding the doctrine that it teaches, namely justification by faith alone. Justification seen not merely as the forgiveness of sins, but also and primarily as the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the one who has faith. That is really the the, the teaching that is set forth here. The act of obedience of Christ applied to me. I'll read it again. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Whose obedience? Jesus Christ. And who are the many? Well, it's those who have faith. Believers in Jesus Christ. But if you speak like that today, if you talk about the act of obedience of Christ, if you talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer as the very kernel of the gospel in a broader evangelical setting or even at times a, broad, a broadly reformed setting, you will find that the average 
pew dweller or the average believer will have no idea what you are talking about. Uh, there was, uh, recently we had uh, the study in justification in Sunday school, and there was, uh, David Stevens shared that, that uh, famous episode where, where Michael Horton went through an evangelical conference, and he was just asking people, now tell me, what does justification by faith mean? And almost nobody could answer that. And in my experience, I've tried that as well. Not with unbelievers, but with believers. Tell me what justification means. It's very common that they're not able to answer the question. And I would suggest that in large measure, that is the result of these verses falling out of use. They're not being preached. They're not being comprehended. They're not being spoken of. The church today has become ignorant of one of the central teachings concerning justification in all of the Bible. And while that is disheartening to ask a fellow believer, what is justification after all? The great doctrine of the New Testament upon which the church stands and falls, Luther would say. What what is it after all? While that is disheartening, I would also suggest it is incredibly easy to fix. For if we simply grasp the argument which is presented in these verses, we will begin once again to know and to understand what was once common among Christian people. And that is the manner by which God justifies the ungodly. The manner by which I am declared righteous in his sight. And the answer is by Christ's righteousness being imputed to me and received by faith alone. But in saying that these verses are the center or the core, let me explain a little more what is meant by that. That that was the quote by Lloyd-Jones, but I'm in agreement with him and I think most everybody is. The commentators, at any rate. Well, it's the center in two main, sen- uh, two main senses. One is that it is literally the center in terms of the argument that is presented there. Uh, what Paul says here has a way of summing up what comes before, but it also has a way of anticipating what comes after. The center of the argument. And so, in summing up, Uh, What comes before you remember in chapters one through three, Paul has told us about the sin and the ruin of mankind against which the wrath of God is being revealed. Chapter one, verse 18, and which will be revealed on the last day. Chapter two, uh, though, I don't remember the verse. Well, how did that ever come about in the first place? Paul has been telling us about the sin, ruin, misery of mankind, the condemnation in which all men stand How did that ever come about? And here he gives the answer. The answer is, not my sin, but Adam's sin. It's perhaps surprising to people who are not uh, as well versed in the Bible as people used to be. Not my sin, but the sin of Adam. But he's also in those chapters leading up to this section told us all about the answer to sin. And that is salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. And here in these verses, Paul tells us how it is that Christ is able to undo what Adam did. If the bad news is Adam's sin and my uh, collective participation in that sin, the good news is the obedience and the life and the death of Jesus Christ and my participation by faith in that. Verse 15, he says, for instance, for if by the one man's offense many died, that's Adam, much more The grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. But it also looks ahead. It states here a new theme, namely that of union with Christ, 
which becomes essential to understanding what follows, especially in chapters 6 and 8, the doctrine of union with Christ. But the second sense in, in which it is the center or the core is that it is the key. The key to understanding, again, the doctrine which the epistle sets forth, namely justification by faith. There are theological categories presented in these verses which are crucial to our ability to grasp the teaching and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Categories which, either misunderstood or ignored, will lead to countless errors. And in fact, uh, heretics uh, are often born out of this passage. Uh, The Pelagian heresy, for instance. Misunderstanding our relation to the sin of Adam. Pelagius would say there is no relation. But that is heresy. That is a denial of original sin, and it leads, not surprisingly, to a denial of the gracious nature of the gospel. Well, I said there were categories which are essential to our understanding of the gospel and categories which, if denied, lead to the ruin of our understanding and our belief in the gospel. And the first of these, uh, there are three. The first of these is the historicity and the importance of Adam. And and you can just uh, note how little Adam is spoken of today. Perhaps I would suggest because we've lost sight of these verses, the importance of these verses. We've also lost sight of the importance of Genesis. Well, Adam is here mentioned for the first time in Romans. uh, But there is no question that for Paul and for everyone who has ever shared his faith in the gospel, that the importance of Adam cannot be minimized next to Christ. Let me underline this this statement. I wonder if you agree with this. Next to Jesus Christ... Adam is the most important figure in the Bible, by far. And there's no one who even comes close. You say, well, what about Moses? Moses is important, but he's not nearly as important as Adam. And it is impossible to read and to grasp these verses, or what is said in 1 Corinthians 15, and to come to any other conclusion. Adam, who is Adam? Adam is the first man. He is the head and the origin of the human species. There was no one who came before him. Of course... As soon as they begin to speak in that way, uh, our modern ears uh, begin to buzz. We think of what most scientists or so-called scientists are saying today, teaching the teaching, the theory of evolution. And the modern man, it would seem, is enamored with the theory of evolution. And he is especially concerned to disprove the teaching of the Bible concerning the origin of man. The teaching or the theory of evolution stands in direct contrast intentionally to the teaching of the Bible. Not one head of humanity, but humanity emerging out of a gradual process of evolution and then out of uh, a a whole host of, of new humans. Not just one, but once evolution was completed and arrived at humanity, it was not one, but many who uh, stood as the new heads of humanity. Well, that's what scientists are saying. That's a very crude definition of evolution. But what is sad is uh, how many so-called Christians today try to accommodate the message of the Bible to the teaching of evolution. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators is uh, Derek Kidner. And his commentary on Genesis and the Psalms is wonderful. uh, But very, very tragically, uh, he tries to do that in his... Genesis commentary. In fact, one of you actually came to me in preaching Genesis and asked me, why are you using Derek Kidner? You know, in that commentary, he teaches evolution. 
Well, this is an impossible position for a Christian to hold. They run uh, into this difficulty who try to make evolution and the Bible fit together. The reality is that if you understand the teaching of the Bible, you will see that these are not matters which you can simply set aside and still hold on to the teaching of the Bible. I mean the matters which are set forth in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 concerning the origins of humanity. If you let go of Adam, you really must let go of a great deal more. And one thing that you will end up letting go of is Christ himself. And I say that because the work of Christ in the New Testament at some of the most crucial junctures, again, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the work of Christ is said to answer to the work of Adam. And Christ is set forth as the second and the last Adam. And tell me what becomes of Christ then if you get rid of Adam. And tell me what becomes of the teaching of the New Testament. It goes away. It disappears. The work of Christ which is presented in terms of salvation from the ruin which Adam brought. Well, perhaps you would say, as I say many Christians try today to do, that Adam wasn't a real person. That mankind originated in a lesser species and then a group of humans which evolved out of those lesser lesser species. And that the word Adam, which also can mean mankind, is just a metaphor for mankind. And that's all you have in Genesis. Well, then I say again, you have to say the same about Christ. And that is a difficulty I don't think you can get away from. But of course, we Christians have no interest in doing so. We are perfectly content to let the scientists do their worst. We will believe the Bible. Of course, we're also perfectly secure in this because we don't really believe that science is against us either. I'm not attacking science in what I say. Only the theory of evolution. We believe, and I'm making a scientific statement every bit as much as I'm making a scriptural statement, that Adam was the first man. The origin of the human species emerged out of Adam. And that all of us descended from Adam and Eve. And we find nothing in science to suggest anything to the contrary. But our great interest is not in science. Our great interest is in the Bible. And it is to know the significance of Adam, since the Bible makes so much of him. We don't need to defend his existence. We accept it. But we need to understand the significance of his existence. For it was in him, the Bible tells me, not only that humanity began, but more importantly, that humanity was lost. And that is the real importance of Adam, the man, the historical figure, according to the Bible. It was that he stood in covenant with God. On behalf of us all. And that by his fall into sin. He brought all of us. Into an estate of sin and misery. He brought mankind. Into ruin. And the reason that he was able to do this. One man. Is because of the second idea found in these verses. And that is covenant theology. And the method of salvation. This, uh, these verses are. Among the most important in setting forth. Covenant Theology. Well, what is covenant theology? It is just the idea, very simply, that God works through covenants. And going back to Adam, we discover that God has always worked through covenants. All through scripture. The whole history of the Bible is a history of the covenants that God has made. 
And never did he seek to deal with man outside of a covenant. Adam, our head, our father, stood in covenant with God. We call that the covenant of works. And his position in that covenant had consequences not only for himself but for the rest of mankind. That was the nature of the covenant in which he stood. And that's something that we will have to consider in detail as we go through these verses. But the third important thought is that of original sin. Original sin, which is something the Christians don't talk about too much today either. But original sin is one of the key teachings of these verses. The idea that the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all mankind. Let me stress that again. The guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all mankind. His sin, which was the original sin, is imputed to me. And in particular, the guilt of it. In other words, I know this is a bit of a scandal. But this is the plain teaching of scripture. I... As a son of Adam, am guilty for his sin. That is the doctrine of original sin. I am guilty for his sin. And that is covenant theology at work. And that is precisely what is found in these verses. Thank God we also know the other side of it. Is that I am declared righteousness for Christ's obedience. Praise God for that. But you have to see the other side of that. Which is the doctrine of original sin. And so from the standpoint of the Bible... And of Christian belief, these are crucially important verses. They provide theological categories which are crucial to basic Christian teaching and belief, and especially to our understanding of the doctrine of justification. But if I were to condense the teaching of the whole into one single thought, and here we find covenant theology at work, I would say this, that the fate of all is tied to the one. The fate of all is tied to the one, either Adam or Christ. We will either die in Adam and be condemned for his sin, or else we will live in Christ and be justified for his righteousness. And it is this that explains the importance of Adam and of Christ after him. It is because our fate before God is tied to one or the other. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. And so you see the relevance of this to the broader discussion on justification. Paul is not only telling us what it was that led to mankind being in an estate of condemnation before God, namely Adam's sin, but he equally tells me what it was that led to the believers being in the state of justification, namely Christ's righteousness. But let me next also notice How what Paul is saying here follows from what he has just been saying in verses uh, 1 through 11. Uh, Important as these verses are, we can't just hang them in isolation and talk uh, endlessly about covenant theology. We are concerned primarily with what Paul is setting forth in Romans. And the value of series exposition is that you get to see the way not uh, not only what these verses teach, but the way that they follow from what was just said. And that immediately becomes evident in the first word of these verses, namely, therefore. Therefore, Paul says, that is based upon what he has just been saying, he has something more to say. What he says in verses 12 through 21 follow from what was just said in verses 1 through 11. As part of his greater discussion, if you remember, the primary teaching of chapters 5 through 8 concerns assurance and the certainty of salvation. 
And so these verses fall under the same rubric. They come to us as part of Paul's greater teaching, not only of justification, that's really verse chapters 1 through 4, but chapters 5 through 8, the certainty that justification gives the believer before God. My certainty before God that I am saved and that I always will be saved. That's what Paul is setting forth here. And that is the real value of the verses that are before us. The way they lend to or add to the the assurance of the believer. And they do so in this way. Going back to verses 1 through 11, uh, you may remember that it is teaching us uh, about the benefits and the blessings that flow to the believer through his justification. They tell us uh, of the blessings that we enjoy through Christ. That's the key phrase of those verses, through Christ. And so just to list off some of those blessings, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1. And through him, we have access by faith into this grace, verse 2. We are saved from wrath through him. We are reconciled to God through the death of his son. We are saved by his life. I'm just quoting from those verses. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That brings us to the end. What a picture of the Christian life. There is not one blessing, Paul says, that we get from God that does not come to us through him. He is ever to be seen as the channel of grace through whom a God who is now reconciled to us ever seeks to bless us. Always through Jesus Christ. Never apart from him. Through the channel of his mediation and his priesthood. He is our intercessor and our great high priest. And by him we enjoy salvation itself and every blessing which accompanies salvation. Namely peace, assurance, joy and so forth. All of the blessings set forth in verses 1 through 11. But Paul isn't finished there. He's only begun to tell us what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be justified. Therefore having been justified by faith. Chapter 5 verse 1. Well he's still expounding that. Yes he says we have all this through Christ, verses 1 through 11. But do you know why we have it through him? And do you know how uh, how he is able to bring all of these things to us? Here we have our answer. The answer is because of our union with Christ. It is because by faith the believer is united to Christ that God through Christ showers upon him these many blessings. Now by faith I am in him. I am in Christ. No longer in Adam but in Christ. And from this arises the greatest source of the believer's security and his certainty. As for instance Paul later says. Again you think of uh, chapter 8. We love to quote it but listen carefully. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is setting forth the doctrine of union with Christ and the certainty that there is now therefore no condemnation, nor can there be. Why? And for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. But do you know what it means to be in Christ? Well, Paul is going to tell us here what it means by contrasting what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ which is one of his favorite methods. He tells us in other places what it means to be under grace by contrasting what it means to be under the law. 
Another way to put this is that we have here a discourse on federal theology. And I wonder when the last time you heard that was said. Federal theology. Do you even know what that means? Federal theology is a subset of covenant theology. And in its essence, it simply means that the covenant God establishes uh, with man is made with one on behalf of all. And uh, I said through him is the most important phrase in uh, in verses 1 through 11. Well, in verses 12 through 21, the most important word is actually one. One. The word one occurs over and over and over again in these verses. How the fate of the many are tied to the actions of the one. And the one is called the federal head of humanity. And I hope you see where I'm going with this. The first federal head was Adam. The fate of humanity was tied to his actions. If by obedience to the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 2... Uh, if, if he had obeyed, I mean, he would have lived and not died. He would have lived forever. And not only that, but we along with him, since our fate was tied to his. He would have brought in righteousness and everlasting life to humanity. But when he fell, and when he sinned, he not only brought about death and condemnation for himself, but to all his descendants. He stood over humanity as a federal head. Sin and death came into the world by Adam's sin. Verse 12. Soon we will see this. But on the other side, once you appreciate the idea of federal headship, you see how Adam, verse 14, becomes a type of Christ. And Christ comes in the likeness of Adam. He appears as a new head of humanity. A new head of a new humanity. Or as Paul later says in chapter 8, the firstborn among many brethren. He's starting, you might say, a new family, the family of God in the new covenant. And uh, as the new head of a new humanity, on the other side of things, if by the one sin many were condemned, now by the one act of righteous, the many are justified. Just as we can also say by his death, the sins of many are forgiven. Our fate is tied to his. He's able to achieve this for us as our federal head. In the same way, guilt and condemnation came to all on account of Adam's sin. I know this is, even for myself, one of the most theological sermons I've ever preached. I know that this is difficult. But I would also say that for too long, Christians, and I would also include in that the pulpit, have shied away from this teaching because of the difficulty. With the result that the church has become impoverished in her understanding of Christ's work of redemption. With the result that Christians don't even know what it means to say, I'm justified by faith. And so as a next point, I would stress here the importance of having a federal theology. Not just the theologians, but the church. The pulpit and the pew. I remember uh, in, in my reading of Hugh Martin's book, The Atonement, which was so helpful to me in preaching the book of Hebrews... Uh, his second chapter on atonement and federal theology. He ties the atonement and our understanding of the atonement, which is the work of Christ on the cross, to federal theology. But what struck me most uh, in that chapter was the way he lamented, or at least feared, that federal theology was falling out of use in the pulpits. And, and this is what he said 
it's, it's somewhat of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth reading. He says, the preaching of disruption ministers was largely leavened, or rather was pervadingly characterized by the large place assigned in it to the covenants. And the consequence was that the intelligent hearers acquired large views of divine truth, could perceive the relation subsisting between different departments thereof, could refer a topic to its proper place in the system, and could accordingly realize themselves to be growing in knowledge. He's not speaking of a seminary classroom. He's speaking of the pulpit and the pew and their relationship. People who are growing systematically in their knowledge of the Bible. Going on with the quote of acquiring real power to make attainments and advancement in spiritual things. How do you grow in grace? It's by growing in the knowledge of Christ. But, he says, if the federal theology should fall into neglect, as no doubt I would say it has today, there is reason to fear that the materials of pulpit instruction will be destitute of that compactness and connection apart from which conscious advancement and knowledge on the part of the people is impossible. The topics will be handled in a disjointed and isolated way. Progressive instruction will cease to be realized and perhaps cease to be aimed at. The next step will be that it will cease to be desired. You see, he's saying people will no longer even want to learn. The production, listen to this, of an evanescent sentimental impression will be the object mainly in view on the preacher's part and mainly desired by the people. The duty of the pulpit to nourish up an intelligent Christian people in the words of knowledge and understanding will be forgotten. Now he's speaking prophetically. He's saying, this is what will happen. People will cease to grow in the knowledge of Christ and make real spiritual attainments thereby. And the thing that they will begin to desire most is just some sentimental impression through the preaching. Now he's saying that's what will happen, but I'm saying that's what has happened. And how does it come about? It is when, he says, the federal theology falls into neglect Progressive instruction will cease to be realized and so on. But the solution is not difficult to find to this problem, which we've already seen. And it begins simply with our desire to grow in the knowledge of Scripture and to view the preaching as the time to do this. Are we willing? This is a question for you to seriously consider. Are we willing as a church once more, as in days past, to sit under preaching in which a large place, he says, is assigned to the covenants? Not a small place, but a large place. With the result that, he says, the intelligent hearers acquired large views of divine truth. They were conscious of growing in knowledge and acquiring real power to make attainments and advancements in spiritual things. And if ever we were to do this, is not now the time. For there is no better place to start than here, where the doctrine of the covenants and that good old federal theology is set forth in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And you will forgive me for taking my time with this. Old truths take time to become familiar once more, especially when forgotten. And that is where we find ourselves today. Well, I need to hasten on to the end. I hear, I heard the beep. It's, it's at the hour. Uh, it might have been one of my sons even. But I have a little bit more to say. Uh, I had more to say than I anticipated. 
I hope you're capturing something of my burden, though, which is to see, again, the importance of these verses. Let me just uh, tell you two key ideas that are associated with federal theology. One is that of union with Christ, which we've already seen, and its counterpart is obviously union with Adam or in Christ, uh, uh, union uh, with, that, with Adam. Humanity is seen in this passage and throughout the Bible as either in Adam or in Christ. In other words, the Bible is teaching us that we have to see not only the importance of these two men, Adam and Christ, but we have to understand our relationship to each. And that is a relation which is described in terms of this doctrine of union. And as a corollary to this truth is the idea of imputation. Another word which has fallen out of use but which has enormous significance. And it is a scriptural word. It is not just a theological category. It is a word which the Bible uses often. An idea, once more, which is not intelligible apart from federal theology. If federal theology falls out of use, so will imputation. For how can Christ's righteousness be imputed to me unless I am found in him as my head? And how can the believer conceive of justification seen as Christ's righteousness imputed to me unless I see myself as standing in some relation to him? Here is uh, where you find Calvin's thought going in his third book of the Institutes where he says on the first page, first we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. So long as I stand outside of Christ, all that he offers to me is of no value. I've got to get into Christ. He must become mine and I must be found in him if what he has gained by his life and by his death are to become mine. And so that is another way of expressing the importance of federal theology, union with Christ, imputation, and so on. To be in Christ is to have his righteousness imputed to me. Christ, my federal head, just as to be an Adam, my federal head, is to have the guilt of his sin imputed to me as well. Verses 18 and 19. You find the same structure in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through uh, 23. For since by a man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead, and so on. I won't read those verses again. As in Adam, so also in Christ, that is the structure of federal theology, the two federal heads. There is similarity, but there is also difference. Whereas Adam brought death, Christ brought life. Uh, and, and, and this will become an important point in our consideration as well. Not only wherein they are similar, but wherein they differ. Verses 15 through 17, especially of chapter 5, stress the greater, uh, the greater work of Christ. Well, I still have more to say, but I think I better hasten on to a conclusion. We have many sermons to consider, all of these things. Let me just stop there. And let me close by stressing this single point, And that is seeing all of this teaching as the way to be sure. You who lack assurance, I say, especially sit under this teaching with great eagerness, great earnestness. As though your assurance in Christ depends upon these very verses for they do see how it is that especially our union with Christ as our head the new head of a new humanity the firstborn among many brethren is the basis of my certainty in him why am I sure if I am sure and the answer is just as simply as this because I am in Christ listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it 
Because we are in Christ, we are in him forever and ever. We are safe. We are secure. There is no in and out of salvation. You are either in Adam or in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have eternal security. You are in him forever. That, if anything, is the impression I hope to make upon you in the sermons to come. And that surely, I would say, is a truth, a truth worth grasping and remembering again as Christian people. And let us be sure, beloved, that we are up to the task. Realizing what is at stake is our own faith in Jesus and our assurance and our ability to reach to the very heights that Paul does at the end of chapter 8. Those verses which we love to quote so much as Christian people. Uh, Well, I think that's enough for one sermon. Amen. And let us come to the table together. Reading the words of institution as they're found in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus Christ is describing, and I think he even uses the word, there it is, my blood of the new covenant. Uh, we, we, we need, uh, if we want to understand the work of Christ, and if we want to understand why my fate is tied to one man, how is that even possible? In many ways, that's the great scandal uh, to the unbeliever. You're telling me that I get credit for his righteousness and he gets credit for my sin? Can that be fair? Can that be just? Well, if you don't have a doctrine of the covenant, I'm not sure you'll be able uh, to make any sense of that. But here is the way. Here is the way that God has operated all along. He has established his covenant with all through the one, whether in Adam or in Christ. And Jesus comes along and says, by my blood, I'm establishing a new covenant And by my blood, your sins will be forgiven. And by the perfection of my life, you will be considered or counted righteous in the sight of God. That's the whole glory. And that's the whole of the gospel right there. And it is the doctrine of the covenant set forth. The doctrine of the new covenant as established in Jesus Christ through shedding his blood on the cross. And that is how we are to understand salvation. That is why I get the credit for his work. It's amazing. But that is really what the Bible teaches And why else, after all, did he live and die, seeing that he had no need of the things which he was offering to us? Did he need to be forgiven for a single sin? Did he need to establish his righteousness before the Father? No, he didn't. But he stands in my place as one condemned and as one who, like Adam should have done, lived a life of righteousness before God under the covenant of works. And thank God for that. That is the doctrine which is set forth not only in the preaching, but in the Lord's Supper, which preaches to us as well. In my blood is the new covenant, and those who stand in covenant relation with him are to share uh, in that saving work and to celebrate it every Sunday by participating in this grace. And so uh, I would invite all who have professed faith 
to come and to partake of the sacrament. And, uh, and uh, with those words, I, I, uh, I need to pray. That Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We are rejoicing to know that uh, Christ is uh, the new head of a new humanity. And we look ever to you, Lord Jesus, for our salvation. We wish to stand not under any covenant but the one which you establish. And we would have your work determine our standing before God. Not our work, not Adam's work, but yours. And we praise you that through you, uh, you have brought in an everlasting righteousness and you have secured a pardon of sin by which God doesn't even remember our sins. That's, that's the new covenant. I will remember their sins no more. And I will give them the spirit by which they might obey my laws at last. Dear God, we look for you to confirm and to strengthen our place in the covenant through this right. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.